Hey yo, we about to tear it up. Yo, break for break, break for break, get drunk. This right here is how we do it. Break it down. It's the Break Atos podcast. We break things down to the very last compound. My name is Summit, aka the potty mouth of the South. And my name is Chris Mitchell, aka the actual factual. What's happening? I'm good, bro. How are you? I don't know, man. You out here doing more features like than like anything out here. You no, just do features. No, no, out no, don't here, say bro. that. Don't say that. Don't say that. Don't say that. No, no, you're doing features out here. I just see you popping up everywhere now. I don't really see anything, but you tell me like, yeah, I'm on this, I'm on this podcast. I'm like, you're on your feature run right now. You're yeah, on your yeah, two chains run. Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing what Buster Rhymes did in the nineties. Yeah. I'm trying to. Just, trying to. Just jump on every just jump on every remix. It's you good, know what Bun B good. did, you know, I've got to keep the keep the keep my name afloat sometimes. Just you know, let people know I'm out here. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, we're, we're so trash. We have to apologize to the listeners for not like being so consistent with things. But you know how life gets involved. Uh, and sometimes, as we said earlier this year, like sometimes we come out for the for the for the people that we want to. Um, and our guest today is no different. Today, we have a friend, not a friend of the show, but a friend, someone who's put in a lot of years. The progression to see is wonderful. She got me paid out here one time. I seen her name in the village voice. I was like, rah. You know, I've known this person for a long time. Uh, they're moderating panels with Jim Jones at Revolt World. They're doing some big things out here today. They're, to, uh, they're here to discuss their brand new book, Fashion Killer. Welcome, Swamiya Krishnamurthy, to the Breaking Atoms podcast. How you doing? I'm doing amazing. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're, we're out here. You are. Do you know what's so funny? Like it's a really strange thing, and I, I, I'll, I may, I may cut this out. But I remember Chris for your for your benefit, and for Lister's benefit. I called our guest the day Obama got elected to presidency on November fourth, two thousand and eight. It was. Wow, I rem- I remember that day. <laughs> One yeah, of the first I re- people I remember called. That day. I remember that day. One of the first people called was our guest. Emotion. That was an emotional day. I was mad emotional that day. Yeah. I remember being in New York and cars were just playing the Jeezy song, My President. That's mad. That's it was you, amazing. You, you're good. You're on your, your little, uh, you're on your uh, mixtape run now, your album run. You're probably going to go see Clue and DJ MV and Ebro <laughs> and all their man's there. <laughs> just everybody. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I've been a writer for so long as a freelancer and this is my first book with Bashing Killa. So it really is the mixtape rapper who's finally putting out their first album. Um, and I liken it to me, it's reasonable doubt. It's, you know, J 1.0, the independent album um, that hopefully everybody looks at as Just a don't classic retire. down Just don't the line, but this that's where book, I am please. right now. We'll be out of it. We'll never. I mean, if I make Jay Z money, I might retire. Um, um, but no, the, the the game needs me. The game needs me. Right. The very super excited. The book is incredible. Um, we'll talk about it more. But I, I said off air, and I'll say it on. Um, you're telling the story of hip hop while you're telling the history of fashion, and there's some incredible stories. Um, I love the fact that things like Dapper Dan visiting India. I didn't know about Fat Joe. Had Fat Joe had a clothing label, and I did not know that. I was like, yeah. "Yo, yeah. I had no." So this book is a real history, and it's for hip hop fans. It's for people who want to learn about the intersectionality between fashion, hip hop, culture. There's there's a great chapter on luxury, which we'll get into as well. It's really really good. But let's start at the beginning, as we should. 
if it's in, if it's the reasonable doubt, let's start at the genesis. What? How did you become interested in writing about this particular topic, and what motivated you to to explore it more? So the genesis of it was an article I had done for Double XL a few years earlier, and it was it was an assignment right about hip hop and luxury fashion. And I was doing the research for that and really surprised that there was no book about it. So there were a few coffee table books, um, magazine articles, but no one had really sort of put a stake down in the in the literary world. So for that, I interviewed, you know, like ASAP Ferg and Misa Hilton, stylists for Young Thug, people like that. And I didn't really think about it after that. It just kind of, you know, uh, escaped my mind. A few years later, as we were actually in the pandemic in America, I think for a lot of people, just sort of taking that moment of silence and everything slowing down and figuring out what did I want to really do next in my career? I had done the cover stories. I had interviewed pretty much every rapper that I wanted to interview. I had done television and radio and podcasts and all these things. And for me, the next natural progression was writing my first book for a journalist that really is a, a a milestone. It's something that has your name on it. You have ownership of it. And it's something that you're contributing to history and to culture, almost almost like a, a, a time capsule, right? Like it sort of lives forever. And th- this idea came back to me. So, you know, I Put, put the proposal together. And what was really important with this book and for me, for my career moving forward and in the lit space is to tell these important hip hop stories, but do them in a way that's thoughtful and intelligent and has that integrity. Oftentimes hip hop, in my opinion, does not get that, that respect yet in the lit world. Hip hop, fashion, these are still considered things that are fun and sort of viewed through a very cursory lens. But to me, I mean, hip hop is 50 as as of this year. And it's really important that the stories also be diverse and be elevated, that we go beyond the coffee table book or the splashy rapper memoir and put history and sociology and culture and all of these things that are part of hip hop really putting them down on paper. So to me, this book, of course, it speaks to hip hop heads and fashion heads, but I think it really is also a love letter to anyone who loves pop culture, history, and just really, you know, you might have a little bit of knowledge, but I think after reading it, you you have just much more appreciation for hip hop as a whole. Yeah, I think I think the the love letter to, to culture is something that really resonates with me when reading it. I think, yeah, I think, and I think you, the, your writing style and, and the way in which you give the latitude to the guests, but also we've your, sometimes we've your personal experiences within it, I think gives that vibe. And I think that's, that's, it's, it comes across in that. How did you, um, so I, uh, we talk about the double XL thing, but you come into the book now. How did you start to approach? research and organizing the narrative itself because his book ended with dapper Dan. i won't give too much away but it's booking it with dapper Dan, which is really great but how did you come to create that narrative and and the kind of challenges you faced when doing that so a little behind the scenes when you're writing a nonfiction book the proposal oftentimes takes the longest part because that's where you seriously 
um, almost blueprint what the what the book is going to be. So the proposal includes the idea, the chapter by chapter breakdown, why you should be the one writing it. So I came into it feeling, you know, really confident. I had these 16 chapters, everything was blueprinted out. But then once you start the research and interviews, you realize that you can't be that rigid to that original blueprint. And there would be conversations. Just for example, I remember interviewing um, EFN, who co-hosts during Champs of Noriega, and he had mentioned just offhand the lowlifes to me. And I remember he was maybe the second person who had mentioned them. I didn't really think a lot about it. He's like, no, you're going to talk to my man. He was in it. I ended up interviewing Thurston from the Low Lives. For those who don't know, they were this famous crew in New York who used to basically steal Ralph Lauren and wear it head to toe and almost be this, these like grassroots outlaw ambassadors for the brand. And after talking to him, I just became so enveloped in this idea of the outlaw, the hustler, the person who was approaching fashion almost from the the outside but in a different way that i wanted to do a whole chapter just about like the hustler and what that kind of meant pulling in things like supreme team and things like that that wasn't in the original in the original proposal um you know similarly i really got into just this idea of going into things like gender and sexuality through the thread of people like andre 3000 and young thug and little Nas X and that kind of took me on a different direction. So I think when you're actually what you start with your mind and what the actual book is, you know, maybe it's about 75% um, and then you leave some leeway to change things. For me, as I was thinking of this 50-year retrospective, it was it was a bit difficult because I wanted to follow a chronology without it feeling like a textbook um, or being something that just felt too esoteric and all, all like talking down to the reader. I didn't want that, but I also didn't want something that was so fluffy that it didn't give the subject matter the gravitas that I wanted. So the book does follow the 50-year chronology, but every chapter can stand for itself. If you only like streetwear, go straight to that streetwear chapter. Um, if you only want to know about sort of the rise of the rapper, rapper-led fashion lines, there's that section that talks about Sean John and Rockaware and things like that. Or if you want this macro perspective, you can start from the beginning, which is Dapper Dan, and then it really ends nicely with him. Um, I will admit that the ending was hard. I remember that first manuscript I turned in. I think by that point, I was running on like two hours of sleep. I was like a lot of writers probably eating takeout at like 4 a.m. in New York. And it was just, I don't even know, it just got to some level of like delirium. And I remember looking at it in the light of day, what is this? So sticking the landing was was a bit tricky. But after that second pass of edits, I knew exactly how I wanted to end it. When it comes to figuring out this balance of interviews and reporting, as well as pulling in some lived experiences, that was really a personal decision. Um, I'm going to be honest, like my editor did not want me to include anything personal about myself in the book. Uh, and some and some editors are different. I know some who really want the author to almost become this this voice, this character. So for me, where I felt really confident and strongly about it, I left it in. Um, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't sort of a main character. But as a kid who grew up in hip hop, and also I grew up in a small town in Michigan. I'm not from one of these big cities. Um, 
you know, I'm an immigrant. I, I originally I was born in India. So having that outsider perspective, but showcasing how hip hop and hip hop fashion was able to build this community and build this feeling of of um, connection, I think was really important. So, you know, I think the long and the short of it with when you're approaching a book at the end of the day, it, it's your book, it's your name on the cover. And I think you get to tell the story how you want to tell it. For me, it was important for it to be comprehensive, but also very readable and enjoyable. And for someone, whether they're a hip hop head or they're not, for them to get something out of it. I love I love that. So you you mentioned you know, the ending it with Dapper Dan was a, was a bit tricky. Um, I'd love to know some more about some of the other challenges that came about with writing writing this book. You know, it's a love letter to to hip hop. But just writing a book is a massive, massive undertaking. So what were some of the challenges that you, you one or two of the challenges you you encountered when writing the book and how you overcame them? I'd love to know. That's a great question. So I say probably the hardest part of writing a book is writing. <laughs> like, right. So you a book is a long lead. So from the time that I the proposal was created to bookshop bookstores is almost three years on on the dot. And that first year I I spent researching. So this was reading every article I could get my hands on. Um, as I said, there are no real other books in this space. So reading tangential books, Dapper Dan's memoir, um, Robin Givon's book about the Battle of Versailles, things like that that were sort of in the space, but maybe not inherently connected. Watching documentaries at the time, Mass Appeal had a fresh dress doing all of that stuff and just real almost immersing myself in this world that can be really fun especially if you're a fan if you're a hip-hop head but at some point you realize oh i have a deadline and i have to actually write at some point so after about a year i I sat down in front of the computer and that first line is so hard so i jumped i think i jumped straight into the ghetto fabulous um chapter because to me that for some reason that was calling me and it felt very comforting. I knew the the subject matter. I'd been an internet bad boy. I kind of knew what I wanted to say for that. And then I ended up going back and, and piecemealing the book. So that was tricky. It's just starting and understanding when you're writing a book, you're going to go through edits, hopefully not a lot of edits, but you will have to edit it. So just put something down on paper. Like that's important is don't be so... Um, concerned about it being pristine that you just don't do the writing so at some point you got to write you know i'd gone to the office supply store and bought pens and note cards and highlighters i didn't use none of that the end of the day i wrote this book on my laptop sitting on my old couch with like the american version of the office in the background from like 10 p.m to 4 a.m sometimes 6 a.m i would just write and then go to sleep all day and do it again uh so that was difficult i think the other part was oftentimes explaining to artists and people in the industry the importance of participating in a book. So you got to remember for a lot of artists and their teams, they're used to doing an interview on Monday. It goes live the next day. Um, I mean, I've done cover stories in print that I did them on a weekend. A week and a half later, it's on newsstand. So they're used to that quick turnaround. So imagine telling an artist, hey, I want to interview you for a book. Okay, already they're a little wary. So what do you mean a book? Is this a book about me? Do I get paid? All these questions come. Spoiler alert, you don't get paid. Um, And then also explain to them that this isn't coming out for three years. 
So how do you communicate that? So the artists who understood the vision, they got it. They were really on board. And, you know, for some of the others, they just didn't get it. So I also hope with the success of Fashion Killer and other hip hop books, more artists and the industry as a whole sees the value, right? In the same way that rock music or pop music gets treated as, you know, as part of the literary lexicon, I think hip hop should also. And it shouldn't only be relegated to, okay, you're an artist, you're doing your life story, you got a huge bag, and that's it. No, there are important stories told through this critical lens that that need your voice and need you on background. So I do hope that artists will see this and be like, hey, I, I need to be a part of the next one. Um, so that was another challenge as well. But all in, I had probably over 100 interviews. Of course, they don't all make the book. Some of them end up just being background. Some end up on the cutting room floor. But that was something tricky to definitely explain to people in an industry we're so used to instant gratification that, yeah, yeah, yeah we're going to have this convo today. You're going to see it on, on a bookstore, on a bookshelf like three years from now. Yeah, that's a that's a really... A really great point, as you know, Summit and I we talked about books, and you know, Summit's always saying, "Man, you should write a book one day," you know. But I remember like talking to someone about it, like this ain't coming out for like a few years, and they were like, "Huh?" It was a bit of a, a bit of a situation to explain. But what I would love to know before I hand over to Summit, as much as you're willing to share, who are some of the people that you interviewed for the book that didn't necessarily make the book, and what will you do with that kind of content later on? Will, will we ever hear it or read it? So there was a whole chapter that I had originally conceptualized about photographers. So I had interviewed Jeanette Beckman, Estevan Oriol, Jonathan Mannion. I mean, really the the giants of, of hip-hop photography. And in my mind, I wanted to sort of talk about the subject matter through the lens of the shooter. At the end of the day, it just didn't fit anywhere. And I, it's there's so much good stuff. In my mind, maybe it's some version of like the deluxe, the deluxe edition of Fashion Killer, but that just all ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, but you know, there there's so many conversations where you might interview someone for two hours and use one line, and that's not to say that the interview wasn't great, but a lot of it is more background, or that's going to lead me to certain research material versus just taking a straight two hour convo and using that line for line. Um, And I think that's kind of the difference of a book like this. This isn't an oral history. This isn't a coffee table book where a lot of times you can sort of use those quotes to really be the bulk of the writing. I mean, this is 80,000 words and it's my 80,000 words. So a lot of that is just that balance of, of figuring out, again, you want to make sure that you're highlighting those individuals who lived it, but there has to be some critical analysis. It can't just be, all right, they said this next topic. Because at that point, why am I writing this book? Right. The whole idea is you have an insider and someone who can critically analyze it and weave together this story. So I think that's the job of the writer. If you're going to undertake a book like this, like an anthology, there's got to be some sort of level of analysis and comprehension that you're bringing to the table to help the reader on this journey. I mean, you know, what else? What else needs to be said? You know, that's what it is. Big facts. Big facts. <laughs> yeah, big facts. But hey, if you want to write a book, I highly encourage you. I think we need more voices. I think there needs to be more diverse voices. 
it's so necessary for anybody out there who's contemplating it, please, like, what more people, right? I think oftentimes the, the literary world really is viewed as the ivory tower. If you don't have a ton of important letters after your name, or you didn't write for the sort of big J journalism outlets like the Times and the Atlantic and New Yorker, you don't deserve to tell these stories. And that's just not true. And I think that's something I also really hope people see. Look, I didn't work at any of those places. I was freelance. I've worked with a lot of places, but I was never in-house anywhere. My whole career has been off of Gmail. And, you know, this this book is coming out through Simon & Schuster. So I think the, the long and the short of it is I, I want more people, especially from hip hop, to be in this lit space. It's It's very different than the media space, but I think that diversity of voices is, is so imperative, I think, in order to really tell a cohesive story of hip hop. No, thank thank you. And it, it's, it's message message received. Shout out to Google Drive all day. Yeah, and I'll take 15% as your uh, agent because I just brokered that deal. And you're, you're a friend of the show. We might have to give you more than that. Come on. <laughs> wow. Well, that, clearly, you didn't, you didn't learn anything from hip hop. You should have gone down, not up. Yeah. Bruv, yeah. I've been doing is making music, man. That's all I do. That's all I do. So um, the shooter, uh, the shooter idea, um, it seems like you're good, lot of good content that you could always do that as an in-person event. So you can have like the photograph they shot and if the audio that you have, you could reuse and you could get the re to redo it, but they could be talking about certain shots or certain um, iconic moments and you can do a kind of exhibition to it. So it could be a nice in-person event. So it's slightly different to a book, but actually something that where people can visit and becomes more exhibit and more into that realm of art, which Installation. gives us that respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as we go there, um, I have started to write um, the outlines of a book, if not started to write a book, but I'll tell you about that after off air. Um, I kind of got okay on it from some people, um, but it's something that I think I want to do, especially getting into the place where I'm now getting to 40 in a couple of years and then I think you know as I get older I might want to write a book because it's just one of those things I've always wanted to do whether I'd be good at it, I know that's a different thing but it's just an idea but um speaking about your book I really wanted to touch upon luxury law because it's one of the best chapters for me because it just resonated with me just when I, on that day I was just thinking about um a lot of things and I think luxury law and diving into the history of slavery and clothing and the way you weave that whole chapter is incredible. I love the other stuff. I like Gail Fabulous is great. And I love, you know, hearing about Carl Kanai coming out with his name. And the Andre 3000 section was a great, was a great read. But Luxury Law, to me, just stood out. I and mean, when I think about interviewing, I was like, oh, I need to speak to her about the importance of writing such a chapter. And, you know, the, the factual and all the knowledge you went into to getting that. Yeah, it's funny. I'm pretty sure that chapter was something the editor wanted to kill. So I love that you. <laughs> no, you can't kill that because because you. That's what I said. Yeah, I said the same thing. Yeah, because it's funny. So for those who haven't picked up the book yet, there is a a chapter really devoted to this idea of why do people dress in luxury? And when you're talking about this, you have to talk about this idea of sumptuary laws, which since the ancient times were ways to kind of gatekeep who could wear what, whether it be a specific color in ancient Rome, all the way to specific fabrics in Europe. And then later we get into America. And a lot of that was tied into things like whether someone was an enslaved person, whether they were free, things of that nature. And for me, 
very much in the beginning, I wanted to make sure there was a chapter early on that dives into this aspect of why do people wear luxury? And to go beyond just this idea of name dropping artists and name dropping labels, because there's there's more to it, right? Again, it's a very simplistic view to think rappers made money, they bought expensive clothes, the end. No, there's more to that because around the world, people spend a lot of money for a certain um, logo on a handbag or a certain fabric or this idea of, of embracing just certain fashion trends, whether it be this idea of showing economic mobility, social signaling. It's this idea if you have the the new Pharrell Louis Vuitton jacket, oh, you, you could afford a $5,000 jacket. Now, we have no clue how you live, what your credit card looks like. The outside looking in, you're successful and the world treats you differently, right? The, it's this adage we have in America, dress for the job you want, not for the job you have. So if you come in looking really clean, people assume that you're smart, you're successful, you're worthy of respect from, from society. And then there is this idea of fashion is resistant. So if someone tells you, you can't wear this either because you can't afford it, your skin's the wrong color, you're from the wrong country, the wrong neighborhood, while the best middle finger to them is saying, fuck it, I'm wearing it anyway. And that's also very much a part of this conversation. And you see that even with young artists now, you get your first big check, you go to the Louis store, you just go to Saks, you go to Gucci, whatever. It's kind of to show to everyone who says, I don't belong here. Well, now you can't kick me out because I am here. So all of that is very intricate and enmeshed. And it was important for me to show the historical context outside of hip hop, because again, this has been going on since the dawn of time before it was more to differentiate royalty and non-royalty. But later that classism in America, we like to think it's a bit more dissipated but it's through economics, through race, um, things like that. So that was important to me to have that chapter that showed that it isn't just about wearing expensive clothes or European lines. Nah, like it's it's some of it is conscious, but a lot of it is subconscious, right? When you pick out an outfit, you're not thinking about all of these things and history and whether your ancestors could wear that, but it's all a part of it. So I'm really glad you enjoyed that chapter. And I think it really contextualizes the story, again, in a much larger perspective. Yeah, I, that, that, I think that's what it does. I think, I think. It, I mean, you open with Dapper Dan, it's, it's, it's a great way. I mean, the preface is great too. The Dapper Dan story is important and I think it's it's a good homage to him. But luxury law seems like the, the historical context. Like this is how we got here. And like, even the idea of the color of purple and how you could, you know, what that represented back in Roman times. And then you look into Jay. And now I'm thinking about it now talking to him. I think, yo, even Raekwon had the purple tape. but putting the, He had a purple tape for different reasons. But imagine if we could link it to that idea of royalty and luxury because purple was that kind of thing. So it's in the Bible too. Purple represented royalty. Right. So it's all. And that's what I'm saying that uh, somebody actually weaves that whole story. I think there's something that Sasha, Sasha Jenkins says that just hit home to me. And I just think, yeah, it was it was a really, really Im- important chapter. And I, I really, it, that I was like, yeah, I'm in here. I'm in. Like, it's like, it's like, it's like when the, that moment in Breaking Bad at the end of season one, you're like, oh, I'm locked in now. I'm in. That's it. You can't get me out of this. I'm binging this. It reminds and me if- of something that Pimp C said when I think people were criticizing rappers for wearing all that jewelry. And he's like, but we used to wear, we used to wear jewelry in Africa. My ancestors 
Yeah. My ancestors wore this. And yeah. just taking me back to school, um, so because I remember, you know, when Moschino and stuff and Versace and Iceberg was all the rage. And I remembered some of the other kids who could have it. They had this social currency where they would look down on me or other people for wearing Carl Carney or NYC. And it's like, but well, we've got this. And it's all, yeah. Like, yeah, we can afford this now. We're here now. We can be a part of this this uh, unnamed fraternity that says we can afford this. So I think I think I think luxury law is a, is a vital piece of writing, definitely. Yeah, and also how the world treats you, right? I think we we know how it is. Let's say you put out a three piece suit versus your your uh, sweatpants. I think you call them joggers over there. Yeah, and we do. It's th- yeah, it's this idea of how people view you. I mean, you're the same person, but it is this this notion that society treats you differently. Maybe someone opens the door. Maybe they smile. Perhaps they don't view you through the lens of criminality or that you're a bad person. And just think about the psychology of your whole life. You're, you've been sort of mistreated and marginalized. And now you have that money and you can put on this, the basically the royal robes, right? And people treat you nicer. Who wouldn't want that? So I think it is very easy to just write it off as materialism and American capitalism, but it, it's so much deeper than that. I was, I was, I wanted to ask because you've really, you've really taken me down a, a, a time travel route. You know, you mentioned like Louis Vuitton and Gucci. These, these brands have been around for like years, hundreds of years in some cases. Um, as opposed to you know FJ five sixty Pele Pele cross colors, they seem to be for, where I'm standing. There's this window of time, especially for brands that have been created within the hip hop culture. They don't seem to last as long. In your opinion, and from writing this book and all the things you've learned, why is that? Why is there this small window of time when vocal is considered cool or shady is considered cool, and it just seems to just dissipate and vanish? Well, I think a lot of the rapper-led lines were very much steeped in that artist. So when that artist's time in the spotlight is done, the the brand is kind of done, right? And this happens with any sort of celebrity collaboration, whether it be sneakers or skincare, whatever it is. So yeah, vocal made a lot of sense when Nelly was at the top of the charts. You're seeing him in the videos. You're hearing him on the radio. But with anything in music, especially popular music, every artist has their season. So I think that was something that really was an affliction to the to the rapper-led clothing lines. Now you see it, but it's almost, I would say, merch has replaced those clothing lines. So you go to a concert and kids are waiting in line for Travis Scott, for J.I.D., for J. Cole, whomever. They're not calling it the Dreamville clothing line, but that's kind of what it is and it very much is based upon speaking to the core fans and the um the followers of that artist for me i think what in the future i would love to see is can a rapper clothing line or a hip-hop clothing line be elevated to something like a ralph lauren or a tommy hilfiger um somebody like puff i think came close with Sean John. I mean, even just naming it Sean John, right? He didn't name it Bad Boy. He didn't name it Puff Daddy. Like, he named it after his his first and middle names. And also the lens through which he designed wasn't about just throwing his name across a bunch of sweatshirts. Like, there were actual pieces and there was a perspective creatively 
So I think if you know so they're working on bringing Sean John back, kind of behind the scenes, that could be interesting. Um, Yeezy is a very interesting case study because I would have said in the beginning it really did tie to Kanye being the biggest artist, huge pop culture figure, his connection with the Kardashians, and then we saw as he had sort of this public, let's say, fall from grace for lack of a better term that brands didn't want to work with him. Certain people weren't going to wear Yeezy. But I don't know. I mean, I think he may be an interesting exception to the rule where his celebrity is so big that his followers will continue to wear his stuff regardless of whether he has an album out, whether he has a big co-sign by someone like Adidas. He may have that kind of a follower base. Um, now, what happens when he tries to pass that baton to a successor? That, I don't know. That becomes the question, right? Are you wearing Yeezy because you believe in Kanye? Well, what happens if Kanye is no longer behind the brand? I don't know what happens, right? So I think that oftentimes happens with rapper, rapper-helmed rapper brands is it's so steeped upon that one person's shoulders. And when they leave, either by choice or by force, kind of the the brand sort of just sort of disintegrates yeah um i think i might need to go into my wardrobe and find some of that old pele pele bridge try try bring them back i think you got to bring it back i actually saw someone wearing rock aware at my coffee shop and i went up to her and i've never met this person hey where did you get that and she said her uncle he had a bunch of old rock aware and sean john and she just gave it to her so if anyone has their old archival material please give it to me because i will wear it 2023 i got a bunch of i got a bunch of echo stuff if you want that so sure yeah, I got the it. rhino yeah okay. yeah i got, wow. I got the over like i got one like um nfl ones i got a bunch of them it was sick bro i loved echo can I, can I ask um can i ask uh during the process i mean it's amazing to get uh, a book deal and, and to go through it. and it seems like it's a arduous process but it's a rewarding one at the end for you during the process of this book, what was the most empowering moment for you? I think the most empowering moment is realizing I could write the book that I wanted to write. That at the end of the day, this is your book and you got a book deal because of the confidence that you can write a book. And that's something that, especially when you're used to writing magazine articles or doing artist interviews for websites, like there's a difference. 3,000 word cover story is very different than 80,000 words. That is, we are talking about, you know, the the big boys are playing in a different league. So just to be able to know that I did it and to get this great feedback, you know, from you guys, from the critics, it's it's been amazing. Um, But I think just that sense of accomplishment that I, I did it and it's something that I can do again if I want to. And I think that 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 was probably the biggest sort of um, professional challenge. I remember in the beginning wanting to, because uh, I'd gone through a few editors, which is kind of a common thing in the pub world, but I wanted to send chapter by chapter just so they would read it and just make sure, is this a book? Like I, I remember asking them, like, okay, just make sure it's a book. And my editor is like, no, just, just send me the whole thing. I, I believe you. You can write a book. Now, at that point, it's like, all right, they're really hoping that this is going to turn out to be something good. Um, but I think it's that, like just knowing that you are you have that skill set and, and empowering and flexing that muscle, I think has been 
has been really great um, for me just professionally. And of course, I mean, seeing that final hard copy book with your name on it is is pretty surreal. I, I got I've got a stack of them at the house, and it was like, huh, I guess I did write that. All right, congratulations, yeah. And that's a dope feeling. I'm, I've never written a book, but I can imagine it's like when you get a CD back from manufacturing or something. Yeah, I think so. It's like you know when artists would say that you hear your song on the radio for the first time, right? It's that sort of. Uh, idea that it's out in the world and i mean people around the world can buy this book but we just um sold our rights in russia for example like people in russia are going to be reading this book like that that bugs me out i've never been to russia i'd love to go if they want to invite me to come to a book signing but it's crazy right to just have that have that um reach and that influence i think is really cool but yeah i mean just the the process of writing and i think one thing for anyone if you are planning on writing a book or taking on a big undertaking it should be a subject that you enjoy that you're interested in you have an inherent curiosity because i promise you you will be in the trenches with this subject for the writing of the book for the marketing of the book and really for the rest of your life so it better be something you're into because you will become the expert yeah, fair. Then if that if you, if you're liking it to rap music, does that mean that you're going to go and swear in the morning and do a freestyle, Five Fingers of Death, Five Paragraphs of Death? Gonna... Yeah, I, I could do the freestyle. I mean, or I might just punch it in because that's what every artist is doing now, anyway. So punch me in. Right. No, go back. Punch me in. Go back. Punch me in. Good show. Um, yeah, good, good show. Good show. I have shout. one more question for you, um, Somia. Since you are the fashion killer, right? You kill. You can. You can kill stuff. I think you can bring stuff back to life. What is one fashion trend in hip hop that you wish would make a comeback? And what is one fashion trend you wish stays dead? That's a great question. I would love throwback jerseys to come back. I love those Mitchell and S jerseys. And in my mind, when I think about all my teenage crushes in hip hop, it's guys who wore those jerseys like that in my mind it's that right and then of course who can forget that great moment when Maya had on the North Carolina jersey in the best of me video turned that into a dress I mean that that has seared into my mind as just sort of perfection so I would love to bring that back oh man who what trend you know one trend I would love to see stop happening is just everyone copying each other Right. Like before there was this idea of you wanted to dress in a way that was unique to you. So you look at even somebody like Dipset, right? Their whole thing was we are from Harlem and we look different from, let's say, Jay-Z, who was on the same label, who was different from Beanie Siegel, who was on the same label, different from Kanye on the same label. It was really this idea of individuality and having something that reflected where you were from, your attitude your mindset and now because of social media it just feels like everyone shops at the same store everyone has on a mary everyone has on fear of god and that's not to say that those you can't wear those lines make it your own but oftentimes it feels like for artists they just almost have a pressure i gotta shop at this place i gotta wear this and to me you're you're not wearing the clothes the clothes are wearing you so i would just love to see that individuality like if an artist comes out even someone i remember years ago interviewing with j cole and cole was like they tried to put me in this high fashion stuff and it wasn't me like i think there was um like the bet awards or something him and 
I want to say DJ Drama wore the same shirt and all the blogs were talking about it. And he's like, no, I'm done. I'm not going to try to be who I'm not. And I love that for him. Mm -hmm. He dresses like a regular guy from North Carolina. And that speaks to who he is, to his music. It's not just jumping on these these trends and the flavors of the moment. So I would love to see that. It's just go back to originality. Don't just use Instagram as your um, as your stylist, right? And that's for anybody. If you want to wear like the latest trends, great. But also go to a thrift store or go to a um, an affordable retailer and make it your own. And I think that that would be something dope to see. So it just doesn't feel like everyone looks alike. And oftentimes it feels that way. Yeah, you you've 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 um you've reminded us something of our pre- what our previous guest said, Franklin, King of Trainers. Shout out to him. Like Summit and I, and I'm sure you, we grew up in an era where it was almost the cardinal sin to go out and buy or wear something that someone else has. Like you know, if you like Adidas and someone else likes Adidas, they got the red shell toes. You go out and you get the green shell toes. Um, I missed the t- I missed the days when you could tell where someone was from just by how yeah. dressed. Like I had a, a friend of ours said he was in Mexico. And he saw someone in, a, in an estate agent and he knew he was from London because of the way he tied his shoelaces. Yeah, shoelaces used to be done in London. We used to show from where, wherever you were from, you used to tie your shoelaces a different way. Yeah, yeah. I'm- okay, so I still tie mine with two bunny ears. What part of London am I from? West London. Great. You're from Irons. That's how we used to do it. I'm from Northwest London. You, yeah, we do things a bit differently, but don't follow us. Don't follow us. Yeah, but we also do it. By, so we also funny. do it on the tongue, though, as well. Yes. So we we'll hide it. Yeah, I like to wear that. I like to do that now. But as a kid, it was the two. No, no, no. Back then, still behind the tongue. The behind, the, behind the tongue, even back then, not not we we didn't show off. No show off. You just behind the tongue. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes that means you're cramming it behind the tongue if you're not doing it properly, and your feet are in pain all day. But it's worth it because you know what? Anything for fashion. And yeah, I mean, it was funny when I had, was talking to Jim Jones this weekend at Revolt. He mentioned. There was like a party he went to back in the day and someone had the same jersey he had on at the at the club. So he, he took his shirt off and threw it in the trash. No, I am not going to be in a room and me and another guy are dressed the same. So that means I'm shirtless, so be it. And I love that energy. I don't I'm not telling everyone out here to walk around shirtless per se, but it is this idea of just confidence. Yeah, confidence in your style and wanting to be unique, I think. I would love just to see that where for artists don't feel that pressure. Okay, you got to make it to Paris Fashion Week. You've got to be the Met Gala. If it's organic to you, that's great. But if it's not and you're a t-shirt and jeans kind of person, then that's cool. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Listen, be original. You've been, you've been an absolute pleasure to have on. We're but, very, very, we're very, very gassed for you. Um, congratulations on the book. I look forward to having my copy. I've placed my pre-order. I can't wait to get it in, in and then showcase it off. And, and it's one of those things where I think you said earlier in the interview about we need more voices and we know we need more people from the culture to write about things with hip hop or even just outside of that. But we need more people from the culture doing because it's our time and it's definitely your time too. So thank you very much for your time. Congrats on the book. Uh, you want to plug the book? This is your time. Yes, Fashion Killer, How Hip-Hop Revolutionized Thai Fashion. It is officially out October 10th, but you can pre-order now on Amazon or other independent retailers. And yeah, this is the first comprehensive anthology on hip-hop fashion. Um, we didn't talk about it, but there's 40 pictures inside. So some great favorites of people like Kanye and Little Kim, 
but also some rarely seen photos of Tupac in Milan wearing Versace or Biggie the first time he wore Bape. And there's like great stories behind that. So if you're someone who you don't want to read the 80,000 words, just flip to the middle and there's a lot of really nice photos. But otherwise, I thank you guys. I really appreciate the support and looking forward to uh, bashing Fella and, and the future. Word. And we'll have the link. The link is in the episode notes as well. So please support that. Yeah, man. Thank you so much once again. Thank you. Thank you. Peace to Somya again for her time, man. That's uh, that was best. Look, it's a good book, man. And I know that's like friend in it, so I got to plug it. But also, I just think you got to let it stand the test of what it is. It is really good. Eight thousand, eighty thousand words. I read every single one of them, and it's like a good appendix. Like this, this it's really written really well. And like I said at the top of the show. If you're not a fan of rap music, you will love this because you'll get an insight to everything. And I just, I like, and I love the little anecdotes and the stories. So Thurston Howe is great, but just understanding more and the and and you know the Puba reference and Lil Kim and Coco Chanel and Cardi B being the first. Cardi B is the first female rapper on American Vogue. I bugged my mind. I was like, seriously, that <laughs> Kim or Foxy? Yeah. And so Cardi and what 2020 or something? That's so I- only recently. That don't feel right. I know, but that's, I mean, it speaks to, wasn't, I think it's... Wasn't, Kim wasn't in Vogue? Not American Vogue, no. That's what I'm saying. This is what I'm learning about. This. So I think to myself, like, you think about how, I mean, in, inherently, because of how rap music is, is, it likes to almost exclude the the female presence of hip hop. So we talk about Cool Herc rather than Cindy Campbell, for example, which someone talks about in the preface as well. Not the, about that, but also mentioned Cindy Campbell. These are names that it's her party, man. Like oh, we, she, Lord, she said Misa Hilton. Yeah. Hilton. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, there's I, some great, there, look, there's some great interviews in it. And there's some great people interviewed for it. Mm. But you know, I just, it bugged me out that like Cardi B was the first female rapper on Vars. That's like, no, that. that's madness. I'm actually you, I'm shocked. Not that she doesn't deserve it. No, no, she does. But it's like, it's it's madness. Like, Dapper Dan went to India, bro. We went to my people, bro, to check out the <laughs> fabric and that. Bro, oh, see, I didn't know this stuff. <laughs> Shout out to you. Know, listen, no, listen, something listen. to be proud of, bro. Because no, no, anyway, real. proud of. Because mm-hmm. a lot of American people don't travel, bro. No, no, no. But Dapper Dan's different. Shout Ooh. out to his son Jelani, man. His his son's he's blessed. He's a friend of the show. Friend of the show. Friend Bro, of the show. For fabric, you know, hey, that's a flex, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, he you know, but he got shit on though too as well. So it's good to see his comeback as well. So he got shit on. Yes. He... Honestly, I think this book is is great. Uh, I finally found out without knowing it. I always all these years uh-huh. thought Tommy Hilfiger was racist. Didn't buy any Tommy Hilfiger stuff. Had the opportunities to right. turned it down. Read the book and I was like. Oh, that was just, it was made up. I'm going to be real it with wasn't... you, bro. For yeah. years, I did not wear Tommy Hilfiger. I mean, I remember during my Grand Central days, I went and got some new glasses and they were Tommy Hilfiger frames and the internal battle that I had within myself, do not buy these frames. Even though they look clean, I felt dirty. Yeah, so I, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who's going to read it, but read it. But Tommy Hilfiger isn't racist. Like I, I, I was telling you off air that, Destiny's Child had Destiny's Fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So I went with a friend of mine. Me and her stood in the queue at Virgin Megastore in Piccadilly Circus when it was Virgin Megastore. And it was the whole crew, right? So you buy Lose My Breath, the, the single, yeah. written by written by Jay-Z and that. No, the Gang whole crew written by Jay-Z. Um, 
So you get to meet them. So this person was handing out like testers of Beyonce's Tommy Hilfiger because it was coming at the same time. Yeah. It was handing out. I was like, oh, get a soundbird, Beyonce, get a soundbird, Beyonce. And what was happening is they were just saying, security was saying, big dudes are saying, no, no, just a CD, just a CD. Um, and album is my it? friend, sorry? What album was this? Destiny Fulfilled. Fulfilled, the last album, which is, by the way, 20 years next year, just letting you know, I want to do a series on that. Um, BBC, holler at me. Um, so, no, maybe not, maybe in 2025, but regardless. Anyway, um, no, it is 2024. The cobs of my brain are turning. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, anyway, anyway. So my friend, I said to her, you go first. So she puts on the CD. I said, put the put the Tommy Hilfiger thing in your in your CD case. She didn't. She had it out. So they snatched it off her. I put my Tommy Hilfiger underneath the CD. First person was Beyonce. And Solange had just had a baby. So I said, hey. And she looked at me and said, hey. She had the like gold Colgate teeth smile. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I'm like, oh my God, this is Beyonce. Right. Mind you, I'm, mind you, like 17 years, I'm like, oh my God. Oh, you were gassed, Beyonce. you were gassed, you were gassed. Gas, bruv, gassage. Yeah. And then I just said, hey, congratulations on being an aunt. Because I'm, I'm rago like that, isn't it? Oh, bruv. Bruv, she stopped, yeah? Check, check it. She stopped, she went, thank you. I said, would you mind signing this? And she went, of course. And she signed it. I don't know how many other people got a thing signed from Beyonce that day because they were taking it off them. Yeah, yeah. That was my move to go, look, say to her, like, it's a, like, congrats for being an aunt because it's the first time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I got my and I got my Lange I got my for her. Sorry, Solange had a baby before her. No, it was the first. It was so it was the first baby Solange had. Ju- Joel's, I think, is this the no, kid's I don't, name? I don't know these things. Um, so it was it was it just happened like a few days earlier. Right, right, right. So I was like, you know, you know me and my family, man, in it, family first, and that. I said, congratulations, being an aunt. It was a move. It was wait. a move to get the two summit from Beyonce, and I got that. Well, you know what though? You know what I'm gonna say in it. Tommy Hilfiger still racist, man. I believed it too long. No, yeah, that's the thing. Bro, it's you, mad. It's Slim mad. Charles said, remember what Slim Charles said, didn't it? If it's a lie, then we fight on that lie. Yeah. Yes. Tommy, I hear you, innit? And I don't want to throw nothing on your name. I get it. But, bruv, it's too late. Yeah, t- yeah, but he's not racist. That's so, true. I mean, like, I get that, but it's too late. He is, innit? But I was hurt. I was hurt because I wanted the Beyonce autograph, but I was hurt because I didn't hate, I didn't like Tommy Hilfiger. Bro, like I said, it's a lie. We still have to fight on that lie. We fight on that lie, yeah. And cool, I see Tommy, cool. it's on site just because. Also, shout out to like Andrew Barber, Dan Charnas. They they're high up in the thank you notes. There's a lot of people in the thank you notes, but they they helped um they helped on the journey in this. Word. And we didn't really get to talk, but but shout out to them. But um but yeah, man, you can follow us uh at Break the Atoms on Twitter and Instagram at Break the Atoms. Chris's handle is I'm Kinetic, mine is Hip Hop Chronicle. We'll be back very soon with another episode. But until then, peace and love. Peace.